Uh, turn to the book of Nehemiah. There's one of those. First, turn to the book of Hezekiah. I did that one time in a youth meeting years ago, and this kid, he went to ECS, which made it even worse, but he's going to a private Christian school, and there's like 400 kids in the room, and I got up to speak, and I said, he played football, that was his problem right there, he played, ended up playing football at uh, University of Memphis, by the way, anyway, so I got up in front of this group of 400, and, and, and I said, all right, turn to the book of Hezekiah, he's flipping through it, he said, I got it, I got it, and uh, John knows him well. John Horn, though, went to school with him, and so we ended up, it became a running joke, because that's not a book in the Bible, by the way, for those of you who haven't discovered that. So I just made up a verse, and we called it Hezekiah 6-6. That was our memory verse for the week, and it says, be ye cool, because I am cool. And, it, and I, I, I see that guy about once every 10 years. He lives, I think he's up in Meadow Bells or Paris, Tennessee, I can't remember which. And, uh, and uh, every time I see him, that's what he says, hey, Randy. Hezekiah 6 6, be ye cool because I am cool. He see, remember, he remembers a verse, and he's in his mid 40s now, and he remembers one Bible verse. Even though it's not in the Bible, at least he remembers something. That's going to be my campaign slogan be ye cool because I am cool. That might work. I couldn't do any worse than some of them running for president. Good night. We better not talk about that. I'll get carried away. Nehemiah, did you find it? Very good. Nehemiah. That's one of those great Bible names nobody ever names their child, like Judas. So when you have your first child, you're going to name it. Oh, no, you're naming it Randy, I forgot. But Nehemiah Randy, I kind of like it. Billy Giannini was going for that, and then he changed it. All right, what we're going to do over the next few weeks, we're going to spend three weeks in this little book. And we're going to look at, if you'll notice your hand out there, the series, Building God's Way. I want to spend three weeks looking at this little book and this man, Nehemiah, and how he led the children of Israel back to doing it God's way. And then in, in a month, after this three-week period, we're going to uh, begin a series, and John will be sharing it with you, and, and David Zachary will be sharing some stuff with you. We're going to begin a series in the book of Revelation about Jesus' message to the churches. And one of my passions for, for this and for us is that we, I want us, Christ Church Arlington, to be a group of people that cares about people around us, our neighbors, if we don't do anything but pray for them, that we do it, that we don't talk about it, we don't say we're going to do it, we do it, that we're going to be people of prayer and people of the book. If we get everything else wrong, we're going to get those two right. I just am convinced that that's what the church needs to do. Build something God's way. We're going to be people of the book and people of prayer. So that's coming up. So we're going to spend three weeks looking at Nehemiah and looking at building something God's way. You'll notice a couple of verses I put there, kind of a theme for this on your handout. Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Very famous verses. You've heard them many times. But here's my, began to think about what I wanted to do as we finished up the last series, and I was praying about it, and I was sharing with someone, and I've mentioned it to you guys, that what a privilege it is for me to be able to serve you because you really do have a heart for doing what's right. And we had talked about the curse of complaining and some things, and, and uh, you're not backbiters, you're not whisperers, you're not gossips, you're not complainers. It, what I've discovered was that's unusual in the church. Sad, but that that's the case. But in so many instances, gossip and complaining and whispering and backbiting and division end up being what characterizes churches, and the world looks at that and says, what? Man, I can do that. I don't have to go to church to do that. I can hang out with my buddies and do that. And you people care. But what I want us to do is to focus on, what do we do with that? You could build a lot of things, whether it's your life, your home, your church, our community, 
in reality as where we are right now, our nation, we're not building it God's way, unfortunately. Let's start with me and my life. Am I growing? Am I building an edifice that glorifies Jesus Christ? What about my home? That's for me and my house. Do we serve the Lord? Or are we just, we're so wrapped up and do we just live and exist and, and go through the motions? So it starts with me and in my home and in this church. Are we going to be different or just be another one? Are we going to build something that truly glorifies Jesus Christ, that is a beacon, that people are drawn to, that they hear the truth, they are encouraged, they are challenged, even as we were singing today, I think what beautiful those words, how special they are. Do they drive me? Am I motivated to leave here and be something that God can use, someone? Are we as a group interested in one another? Do we care about our neighbors and their eternal destiny? Are we interested in the people that we work with? Do we care about our city and what's happening to it? Do we care about our country? What can I do? What can we do? And truly, if we're people of prayer, that is the most important thing we can do. And then being people of the Word of God so that we get it into us and it changes us and molds us, it shapes us, and makes us more like Jesus Christ so we can be effective. So you come to the book of Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra's the previous book, Ezra and Nehemiah in the ancient Hebrew Bible were one book. They're divided into two books in our Bible, but they were one book. doesn't really matter. But they are the story of the nation of Israel after the Babylonian captivity when they went back to Jerusalem and to Judah, where they were from. Ezra went back about a 100 years or so before Nehemiah, and he rebuilt the temple. It had been destroyed about 600 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. They came in and, they, and in three sieges from 586 to 586 B.C., they sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, just tore down the walls, and he took the nation of Israel into captivity, which God had prophesied would happen to them for their sin and rebellion. So Nebuchadnezzar takes them. And you, you see that beginning in the book of Babylon. You can read about that, the book of Babylon, the book of Daniel, the book of Babylon. Is that in your Bible also? It's right over there with uh, Hezekiah. So... Sometimes my mouth gets ahead of my brain, my wife told me. So I shall slow down. I was going to tell you a joke, but we ain't got time. All right. So you can read about that in the book of Daniel. And they go into the 70-year captivity. And at the, at the end of that, Ezra goes back and he rebuilds the... Ezra was a priest. He goes back and he rebuilds the temple. Now Nehemiah, who is a layman, he is the cupbearer, the confidant, the Artaxerxes, king of Persia. You have Babylon and then the kingdom of Persia comes in and... Now, uh, uh, Nehemiah is his cupbearer, or kind of like his, his uh, man, his valet, whatever you want to say. But he is his confidant. He's one of the most important people to the king of Persia. And he gets a, a burden. God raises him up to go back to Judah, to Jerusalem, the homeland of his people. By the way, Nehemiah was born in, in Babylon or born in Persia. He had never been to Jerusalem. He'd never been to Judah. He didn't know anything about it, but he got this burden for his people, for his land, his ancestors' land, and he got this vision, I want to lead them back to restoration, to being God's people at God's dwelling, Jerusalem, God's way. And so that's the story in the book of Nehemiah. So as Nehemiah opens, it's 444 B.C., and Ezra, as I said, has already gone back and he's rebuilt the temple. Now, Nehemiah, who's just a layman, he's not a priest, but he, he is the cupbearer to Artaxerxes. And the pick, what you're going to see as we go through this over the next three weeks is Nehemiah is a man of God. He's a man of integrity. He's a man of the, of, you see him 11 different times in this book praying. You see him reading the word of God. At one point he talks about he read it 
It just had it read all day long. Just read it. I think that's kind of interesting. Sometimes we have trouble sitting through a 30-minute sermon. They read God's Word all day long just to hear what God had to say. So what you notice as you watch him is that he goes back and he leads the people, not just to rebuild a wall, but there's a spiritual picture here. Because the walls were broken down and they were just destroyed, they had no protection and no separation from their enemies. They were completely vulnerable and just open to every attack that came because they had no protection, no separation from their enemy, and they could not withstand any attacks. And that's the picture, spiritually, of who we are as a nation right now. Because we don't serve the one true God. The walls are just simply gone, and we're vulnerable to every attack. But God, and this is what's so special about being a believer, God has raised up one institution. There's another place in the Bible talks about standing in the gap. He's raised up one institution to stand in the gap. That this nation, if it's ever going to be what God wants it to be again, that one institution that will bring that about is the church of Jesus Christ. That's you and I. It's throughout our nation. Jesus Christ said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. And until he returns, he will have a witness. Right now, during this moment in time, in the history of the world, specifically in the history of the United States of America, God has given you and I and Christians throughout our nation the privilege of saying we are the ones who are going to stand in the gap. We're the ones that God can use to rebuild the wall. We'll start with me and in my home, concentric circles. Me, my home, my church, my community, my nation, and my world. What does God want to do with me? What does God want to do with us? Nehemiah's name means comfort of Yahweh, comfort of Jehovah, or Yahweh has comforted. What you're going to see over the next three weeks is he goes back, he goes to Artaxerxes, he gets permission to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of the city. And when he gets there, he has a tremendous opposition from without and from within. We'll talk about that when we get there. Yet despite that, despite incredible opposition, and despite discouragement, despite all the things that Satan and the enemy can throw against him, in 52 days he rebuilds the walls. 52 days he gets it done. That's pretty impressive because he knew this is what God wanted. He had tunnel vision. He had a single-minded focus like Paul writes about in Philippians. One thing I do. So this is what God has sent me to do, and we're going to do it. And he led those people to get it done. And it's a tremendous testimony to God. He's the son of a slave, born in Babylon and Persia, never set foot in Jerusalem. He said, this is what God has called me to do. I'm going to do it. So open your Bibles to Nehemiah 1.1. Let's begin to look at this problem that Nehemiah faces. Nehemiah 1.1. Let's look at his concern. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakiah, came to pass in the month of Shizuf in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the citadel, or fortified palace, the Hananiah, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, just Jerusalem, the surrounding area, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, had gone back from Babylon back to Jerusalem, who had survived the captivity, the Babylonian captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province that are there are in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. He's concerned about his people, the Jews, and he's concerned about his homeland, even though it's, he's never been there. It's the homeland of his ancestors, and it's very important to these people. Even to this day, even to this day, I had a conversation with some people last night that were asking me about going to Jerusalem and going to that land 
to this day, those people will fight and kill each other over that land. It's always been special to the Jews. It's always been special to the Arabs, and it always will be. He says, what about our people? What about the homeland? And they, the brethren, his brother tells him how bad it is. And understand, as Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, as his cupbearer, he's at the palace. You see right there in verse 1, it says, in the 20th year, I was in the citadel, the fortified palace. That's where he lived. He was prosperous. He was well off. He was doing good. He was at peace. He didn't have any problems. And he was a powerful confidant to the king of Persia. Like Daniel, he was one of the most powerful men in the world. Could it have been in the flesh who most people are? Couldn't he have said something like, boy, that's pretty, that's pretty bad. I'll be praying for you guys. But you know, really, it ain't my problem. That's kind of what some people would say. We'd all probably be tempted to do that. He was well off. He had never been there. Really wasn't his land, but it was their land. It was God's land, and it was God's place. It was Jerusalem. Those were his people. He cared. He had a concern. He gets the brother, here's the verse three. They're in great distress and reproach. The walls are broken down. The gates are falling. Now I want you to notice his response in verse four. Notice his compassion. And we'll come back to this in just a moment. So it was when I heard these words about how bad it was that I sat down and wept and I mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Notice his compassion. He cared. I want to read you a quote from a pastor, and they did not have his name, so I apologize, I don't know it. This pastor was writing about America, and he writes these words. America has become a nation whose walls are broken down, and for the most part, they've taken them down by force. We dismantled the walls so that we could be free. What I want to do, uh, what I want to do is destroy the walls of marriage and family, and everyone's in danger because there aren't any walls anymore. All around us are individuals, marriages, and families that are in danger, and they don't even understand why. It's not enough for us to point to our better marriages, talk about as Christians, and our happier families. They want to know, talking about all the people around us, they want to know if we care. Not just that we have the answers. We do have the answer in Jesus Christ and in giving, surrendering a life, a family to him. But we need to be able to look people in the eye with no condemnation, and say to them, we love you. I love you. How can I pray for you? How can we pray for you? Ultimately, our goal is to make disciples, to share the gospel, to share what Jesus can do, how he can heal an individual, how he can heal a home, how he can heal a marriage, how he can heal a broken relationship with, with a, an adult child or with a friend or somebody in a family. Jesus can do all of those things. But it has to begin with people understanding as we look at them that we care about them, that we don't think we're better than they are. We don't think that, that there's something to shy away from. I've actually had people ask me when they found out who I was and where I work, they said, well, can anybody come to your church? And I said, yeah, only if you dress up. I had a lady one time walked in and said, said you people dress up at that church. I said, have you been there? I said, most of us don't wear shoes unless we have to. And you said, I don't. They need to understand that it's not just that the doors are open. And if you please, if you don't get anything else out of this series, get this. It's not that the doors of our church are open but they are, because they are. It's that our hearts are open, that we, we genuinely want what's best for our neighbors, our world, people that we, we work with, that we just come in contact with. We genuinely want what's best for them. 
That's what it means to love somebody. Now, obviously, what's best for them is a relationship with Jesus Christ. They become a growing follower of his. That's what a disciple is. But it has to start with them knowing that we care. You know what the number one criticism of the religious elite had of Jesus Christ when he was on the planet? What did the Pharisees always criticize Jesus about? He hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. That's what they need to say about us, is that I care enough about my neighbors to get involved in their lives, to be interested in what's going on with them, to want to know, where are you hurting and how can I help? How much do you care? Notice Nehemiah's concern. Notice his compassion. Verse 4. So it was when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting, notice, continually, praying continually before the God of heaven. Look at the four things that he did. It's there on your handout, the blanks. He wept, he mourned, he fasted, and he prayed. Without going into great detail, just a couple of things. When you see this, notice, the very first thing I want you to notice, it says when he heard these words, he sat down. I want you to get a mental picture of that. One of the things that, that this tells you, that, that it was a common custom, and even to this day in some Jewish cultures, some Jewish arenas, that's what mourners always do, is that they sit down. And the idea here is that he was overwhelmed with grief, that his people, that the homeland of his ancestors, that Jerusalem, that Judah, that Jerusalem was like this. It overwhelmed him. He was weeping. He was mourning like a death. He was fasting. He was praying. And the idea of fasting is this, is that he gave up food so that he could spend his time praying for those people, for his land. That's the idea of what a real fast is. It's not so much just giving up food. It's that I give up even the time to eat so that I can spend that time praying for someone or doing something beneficial spiritually, whether it's my, it may be in the Word of God for my personal growth so that I in turn can be more beneficial to someone else. He, this overwhelmed him. This is the jumping off point for this whole series. I want you to see, for many days, for many days, why did he care so much? Because he was sensitive. He didn't live there. He'd never been there, but he cared. He wanted what was best for God's people, God's place. They, he cared. And notice his prayers, starting in verse 5. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O oh, great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night. Continual prayer, day and night. He was absolutely overwhelmed by this news. But I want you to notice how important this is. As I told you, as we begin to look at what God, how God can use us, notice he couldn't do anything yet. What's the first thing he did? He was overwhelmed. He sat down. He's mourning. He's fasting. He's praying for days. Notice, and please write this down somewhere in your heart. Hank Hanegraaff puts it this way. Prayer is firing the winning shot. Some people say, well, all I can do is pray. Don't say that. That's the most important thing you can do. It's the most important thing you can do. When I tell somebody that I'm going to pray for them, I, I, I consider that a privilege that I can do that and know that the God of the universe, my Father, cares and is attentive. Notice Nehemiah's prayer. Lord, be attentive. He spent a lot of time, many days, continually praying about the situation. Mark it down. 
That's what you need to do. If I'm going to be an effective believer, that's my prayer life has to be that way. If we're going to be an effective church, we have to be a church of prayer. If our, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, and you'll hear more about that over the next few weeks. So he praises God for continually praising God for his superiority, who he is, for his strength, for his sovereignty, just for who God is, how sacred, how holy he is. Understand this. When you pray, and he's talking about praying for God's people, when you pray, who are you talking to? Is it the man upstairs? The big guy in the sky? Is it the force? I hope not. I hope you understand that when you pray as a believer in Jesus Christ, number one, you're talking to your father. Number one, you're talking to the most, the, the, um, the only being in the universe that can answer prayers, who has all power, who is everywhere at once and knows everything. That'd be a good person to talk to, wouldn't it? And he, and he understands, he knows already the future, good person to talk to. Understand how significant he, that person is that you're talking to. And then pray for each other. Do not raise your hand. I don't want you to raise your hand. But I want you in your heart, right where you sit, answer this question. How often do you pray for me? I'm asking you to pray for me. I need it. Do you pray that these services on Sunday morning will be beneficial for the kingdom of God? Do you pray for Peter Simon? Do you pray for John Horn? Do you pray for the people that lead you in worship? Trust me, they need it. I know them. I need it. You need it. I do not spend enough time in prayer, and I'm convicted of it every day, and I spend a lot of time praying, but it's not enough. You can never pray enough. So if it's not a habit in your life, make it one. How much time do you spend reading the Word of God? Not just reading it to say, ooh, I got that, I read that, got that done. Do you have some time every day that you just spend a little time hearing from your dad? The Bible is an incredible book given to you by your father. It's the manual for you to be what he wants you to be. You need to spend time in it, and you need to spend time in prayer. If you don't do anything else, pray for me. I'm begging you to. I need it. So I pray for you. Because I want us to be not just a church. I want us to be something in some an organism that's alive that God is using in this community and in every place we go. And in our prayer life, that could be all over the world. And the perseverance he talks about there day after day. He just keeps praying. Don't give up. Here's one of the things you'll discover in your prayer life when you decide that prayer is going to really be important to you and you start setting time aside and I'm going to pray. And I, and I pray all the time. I may be driving. I might be cutting the grass. I might. I pray all the time. If I'm playing golf. I definitely pray because I need it. Sure wish it would help, but it doesn't. But Satan does not want you to do that, by the way. So mentally, he'll throw up every distraction that he can. Could be your spouse, your children, the phone. So in some ways, you have to find a time. I'm not going to let that happen. And mentally focus. The Holy Spirit wants to hear from you. Now, you'll be convicted of some things you probably don't want to be convicted of, but that's a good thing because God's shaping, molding, pruning, making you what he wants you to be so you can be more effective for him, which is, by the way, why you're here. The reason you're on the planet, talking again to some people last night, and talking about why, how come uh, Jesus just doesn't come on back? It's as bad as it is, and it's bad. The lady was saying, oh, it's just awful. Why didn't he just come on back and get it over with? I said, because he's a God of grace. He's a God of grace. Aren't you glad? I'm sure glad he didn't come back before April 19th, 1970. That was cool. I remember doing that when I was growing up. That was impressive. Whoever made that airplane, that was a good one. I'll tell you a quick story about airplanes, then we'll move on. 
19, I forgot what year it was. We were in Dallas, Texas at, at Texas Stadium having this big Promise Keepers meeting, and we were flying paper airplanes during one of the breaks. I mean, we were good at it. We were flying them all over. So the guy gets up on the podium, and he says, those of you that are flying the paper airplanes, would you please stop? So I made one more. I had to. <laughs> and I wrote on it, Bellevue Baptist Plane Ministry. <laughs> and then I flew it. All right. I've confessed that to my friend at Bellevue. By, by the way, uh, speaking of praying, the guy that's a pastor of the, the, the campus out here, Bellevue, he's a great guy. I've known him for a long time. Phil Newberry has cancer, and you need to pray for him. Write that name down somewhere. And Phil Newberry, just, just pray for him. He's having surgery this week, as a matter of fact. Okay, uh, latter part of verse 6, second thing in his prayer life, confession of corporate sin. I love this. This is where you see the man, Nehemiah. Look at verse 6, the last part of it. I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, so he's praying for, and confess the sins, plural, of the children of Israel. Now notice these pronouns, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, or the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Confession of corporate sin. What he's saying is we, we as a group, that's the reason, by the way, they were into captivity in the first place, is that they as a group were not following God, were not doing what the Lord wanted them to do, and they ended up going to Babylon in captivity as a result. But here you see the man Nehemiah and how godly he is. He is, he is confessing the sin of Israel, but he's including whom in that group? Himself. He's saying, we, I and my father's house, we, both. He's saying, we're guilty before you, God. We confess or agree to these sins. Please hear our prayer. What you see here is there's no self-righteousness in Nehemiah. He's not saying, you know, those people, God, look at them. Look what they did. If I have you, God, I don't blame you. I just, I'd wipe them out. I ignore them. Well, he says, no, we, we, it's us. It's us. I'm part of it. We don't see, and there's not recorded for us, Nehemiah being rebellious against God. What he's saying is, Lord, I lump myself into that group. We are your children. We need you. Now notice verse 8. It's centered, another principle you can learn, centered on the word of God. Verse 8. Remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Centered on the word of God as he prays, one of the best ways you can pray is pray God's word back to him. Father, you have said this, and and your nature is who you are. You keep your promises. You said you'll never leave me nor forsake me, so I know you're here. Thank you for that. Pray God's word back to him. Claim those promises that he makes. Nehemiah is a man of prayer. Nehemiah is a man of the word of God. And if we don't do anything else, that's who I need to be, my family needs to be, and our church needs to be. People of prayer, people of the word of God, and let's see what God can do. And then in verse 10, you see him cry for mercy. Now these your servants and your people, these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. And so the last thing he does is say, God, please have mercy on us. And hear our prayer. And notice his plan. 
Chapter 2, it says, I came to pass in the month of Nisan, it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and I gave it to the king. Now, I'd never been sad in his presence before. So now, remember, he's the king's cupbearer, Artaxerxes. And so he goes before him, and he's obviously been overcome by what he's heard, and it's, it, clearly it shows on his countenance. And therefore, the king said to me, why is your face sad since you're not sick? In other words, what's wrong with you, Nehemiah? You've never been like this. This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. And I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? And the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to, to me, the queen who was also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they may permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to King Asa for the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Then I went to the governors of the region beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. And the king had sent captains of the army and the horsemen with me. And notice verse 10. We'll get into this next week. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. And we'll talk more about that next week. But he's, just, he's prayed and he's decided. The last thing he did was say, all right, God, I've wept, I've mourned, I've fasted, I've prayed, and here's what I'm asking. I'm going to Artaxerxes, God. I want to go back and rebuild the walls, if it's your will. I'm going to ask Artaxerxes for permission to do that. What you see here is that he went to the king, his dad, and then he went to the earthly king, Artaxerxes. Which one had more power, do you think? He knew. The book of Daniel says every king is in the hand of God, the Most High God. Puts them in power and has them. Do you think Barack Obama is as powerful as your God? Do you think John Boehner is as powerful as your God? No, thank God they're not. But our God is sovereign. Nehemiah goes to Artaxerxes and says, I want to go back and do this for my God. And Artaxerxes lets him do it. And what you notice in there is that Nehemiah says, because the hand of God was on it. So now he knows he's going to Jerusalem and that it's God's will that he rebuild the walls. You're going to see over the next two weeks, that ain't going to be easy. You would think, okay, it'll be smooth. God wants the walls rebuilt. We'll just go do it. No, our buddies here at Sanballat and Tobiah are going to make it real hard. But in 52 days, he gets it done because he's doing it God's way, building something God's way. It begins with this, real simple. Do we care? Starts with that. Do we care? If we care, we'll be people of prayer, and we'll be people of the Word of God, and then we'll see, go about doing what our dad tells us to do. Would you bow your heads, please? Father, we thank you for grace. We do thank you that Jesus has not come back yet. We know he is coming, and we look forward to that day as believers. We want him to come back. But we thank you, Father, in the interim, you give us the privilege, the privilege of being the institution you have called, raised up to present your name to our world. So I pray as individuals, it would begin with me and every individual seated here, particularly parents, husbands and wives, adults. And I would say this home that I live in, 
It's going to glorify Jesus Christ. We will serve the Lord. If we're going to build a house God's way, so we're not building it in vain. And then our church would be a church of prayer and a church of the Word of God so that we can impact this community for Jesus Christ. We can build something special and build it God's way. So, Lord, during this last time as we sing, there are individuals here, Lord, if we need to confess sins, we would do that right there in our chairs. If we need to pray with somebody, come down front. But, Lord, for somebody here who doesn't know Jesus, they could say, Lord, thank you. This is the moment you died in my place. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life and save me. I want to build a life your way, not my way. Lord, maybe even for our nation, that we would begin to build it God's way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.